Hey everyone, welcome back to the M&M Hockey Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metzger. Along with me is my co-host, Chase McCallum. And today we got uh, slightly the stuff, looking at the playoffs that have officially started. Um, we realized we probably could have just left our Canadian division preview until this week because it still has not started. Um, but uh, we did that last week where we're going to talk a little bit more about stuff we know, some lineup decisions, and look at the playoffs that have started, um, as, long, as well as look at some news. Let's go with a non-playoff thing, I guess, to start just quick because it's it's some of the oldest stuff. The New York Rangers made some moves uh, over the past week or so. Um, first of all, they, they fired their coach, David Quinn. Um, they That's what his name was, right? It was David Quinn? Yes. Yeah. Um, fired Quinn. Uh, they extended Ryan Lindgren to a contract. Um, let's start with Quinn, I guess. I thought that this was kind of the right move. It wasn't really surprising. Maybe the only surprising thing is that when a new GM gets hired, they sometimes keep the coach around as a bullet in the chamber, you know, so they get almost an added year. And you can almost say, well, look at the first year, it wasn't my coach that I liked as if, you know, it makes a massive difference half the time. But um, yeah, Quinn's gone again. I don't really think highly of this Rangers team because of how badly a lot of their prospects have developed. Didn't really think that highly of Quinn. I know a lot of Rangers fans didn't really like him. Do you have a certain take one way or the other on this? Um, I was a little surprised to see him get fired, but no, I don't feel super passionately. It's not like they were this absolutely dominant, like five on five team where you're like, oh, this coach had them firing on all cylinders. You can't fire them kind of thing. Like they were just kind of like they were better than their, their record showed and everything, but it's not like this was this outrageous fire. And I guess it depends how much you think the coach is responsible for the development of the players too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, I don't know, like to, to me, sometimes I think it depends, but when there's an obvious trend of multiple guys, not even coming close to what, you know, we thought maybe their potential would be, and not even that, but just not even like, like barely becoming good hockey players. I think it part of it's gotta be on the, uh, on the coach. Right. Yeah. Like it's cause everybody comes from a different background like the common denominator is the New York Rangers where the prospects have all gone to go underwhelm. So like the most logical person to blame would either be their AHL team's coach or their NHL team's coach. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. Um, you know, I, again, like it'll be interesting to see which way they go. Um, people have said they need like an old school style in there. Um, Mike Babcock was a name that was brought up as a very James Dolan hire, which uh, would be almost hilarious. Uh, probably not good for the team. Like the thing I, the thing I hate about hockey so much is that um, so often teams swing and miss. I mean, like coaches, they just, they have a shelf life of two to three years, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but even the best coach, like Joel Quinville got fired, you know, even the best coaches just kind of run dry after a little while. Um, the, the thing I don't like is that when one style of coach works, NHL, for whatever reason goes, we have to completely shift directions, you know? So Quinn, the, the, the college coach didn't exactly work out. We have to go the exact opposite way. Same with like the flames. It's like the, the buddy, buddy guy. No, it's time for Daryl Sutter, the hard ass in the room. It's like, well, maybe it just wasn't the right guy and you don't need to hire his copied clone, but it doesn't mean you can't look for similar traits that you think could work out within a different person, you know? Yeah. It's weird. Cause like, you you're the Rangers you're like a one and a half billion station there's obviously a lot of thought 
put in traits that make a successful coach for your hockey team, like those traits shouldn't have changed in the past three or four years dramatically. You know, like some guy can come in and fail and you can maybe tweak things. But if your philosophy on what makes a good coach is being overhauled in like a few year period, you've failed at some point. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. It's, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, they also hired today, actually, I don't know if you saw Mike Greer uh, as uh, advised to an advisor role. Um, Mike Greer played uh, over a thousand NHL games. Uh, obviously he's African-American as well. And that name, if that name sounds familiar to you, it's because his brother is currently general managers of the Miami Dolphins. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, Mike Greer was an assistant coach, I believe with the devils as well for a couple of years, he retired back in 2011. So um, again, I don't really know what that role is going to entail, but kind of a cool hire as well. Um, so we'll see where that goes as well. Um, well, the Dolphins are well run. Not that that really means much. <laughs> I was going to say, I, yeah, like, it, and I think, I believe his dad also worked in the NFL with the Patriots and Texans, but I could be wrong on well, that. Well, that's one end of the spectrum, the complete other end of the spectrum there too, but yes. it's a cool hire, if nothing else. I'm looking it up. Uh, Bobby Greer, former football player, was first African-American football player to break the color barrier of the United States Collegiate Sugar Bowl game in 1956. So um, that's also cool. A lot of family history there. But um, the other piece of news that they had was uh, Ryan Lindgren extended. I am saying this as I don't have his contract pulled up, of course. Uh, here it is. Three years, $3 million per $9 million total. Um Let's get your take on this first, Chase. What were your thoughts on the contract and Lindgren as a player? Um, it seemed like a lot of money to me, unless I'm missing something about Lindgren. Well, he's like, been playing with Adam Fox all year. Yeah, but like I'm assuming Fox is the one that deserves the lion's share of the credit there, correct? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think his numbers are definitely inflated because of Fox. Um, like, I don't think it's a bad contract though. Like, I think even if you say Ryan Lindgren is a four slash five playing with Adam Fox and looks like a, a two because of it, like I'm paying three by three for a number four defenseman is there's definitely worse deals you could do. Yeah, you're right. Actually, even if he is just, you're like Justin hole and he, he's more of a product of who's there. Yeah. There's still value in that. You're right. Yeah, I mean, like, I just, the the takes ranged a lot, I I felt like, online um, with uh, what this contract was like from, like, oh, this is just an absolute steal, which I I wouldn't call it either. I I do think that he is a a product of Adam Fox, To Adam Fox is just completely getting his uh, line mate pairings paid. And, again, like, that's, there's some truth in that, I believe, but uh, I, I don't think this is the most aggressive one. Like this is nowhere near as bad to me as like the Essa Lindell contract was a couple of years ago. Um, or even um, I think what Ryan, yeah, Ryan Graves signed for three times 3.1 or four times 3.1 last year, I believe. So, um, you know, to me, it's, it's not that bad of a deal. It's one that I don't think it's going to provide like a ton of surplus value to what you're paying him. But if you tell me that at the end of the contract, it was roughly what you expect, maybe like a tad over or under, I wouldn't be shocked at all. Um, let's see. The other coaching hire or fire we had, or sorry, no, <laughs> I'm all over the place here. There was a coach extension this week as well. Uh, 
Jeff Blashill got extended by the Detroit Red Wings. I didn't see any contract details about this, but I would assume for it's probably at least two years, I would guess. Um, this was a much more surprising one to me that to me than Quinn or to a lot of people. Anyways, I wasn't actually surprised at the time the news came out because, you know, it, it feels like one of those cases where they kind of know that he's, they're going to be bad for two more years. So just let him coach. And then he probably isn't the guy that uh, is going to take them, you know, to the, uh, the, where they need to be in a couple of years, but just kind of let him go for now. But um, you know, the more got pointed out, this doesn't make a ton of sense to me. He has been kind of like act again. It, it depends how much weight you put on, coaching for prospect development, but it feels like he's kind of been actively hurting the prospects that he've got. He's gotten. And granted, he hasn't gotten too many great prospects. Like even Philip Zadina, it's not like Zadina was absolutely torching the AHL before he came up or anything like that. But um, you know, maybe a bit of a surprising decision. What do you, what's your take on it? Yeah. All the Red Wings fans I follow were really pissed off and I have to give some deference to them or a lot of deference to them. Cause I don't, watch Red Wings games very consistently because I don't hate myself and I'm not a fan of the team. So I assume like it's not a great hire. He's got bad results, but I like what does Barry Trotz get out of this Red Wings team is my big defense of him. Yeah, like that's the that's the thing, right? It's like you could have the best coach in the world and this team is still not getting above 26th or whatever, right? Like it just and so that's and where I go back and forth. Be bad. Like you want to, you want, cause this year's draft, uh, the top from all accounts of prospect people is not good. You're not getting your Matthews McDavid level player. You want to be bad, like near dead last to win a lottery in 2022 or 2023. If you don't have those pieces, which Detroit falls in that bin. So like, do you really want a Barry Trotz on this team who drags you from like 30th to 24th? No, I don't think so. But I guess the other argument would be the argument against him um, would be you don't want to bury trots. But even if you got, say, like a DJ Smith where, um, you know, I've had my gripes with Smith over the year. But I, I will say that by the end of the year, I thought he was playing a lot of the prospects. It, it took him more a couple weeks more than it should have. But he eventually came around to using the prospects how they should. And you saw legitimate development out of them. If the argument against Blash Hill is you suck and your prospects that you already have aren't developing in a meaningful way. Um, I, again, it's kind of the idea where it's like maybe you move on from him and look for someone like him. But that will actually just, you know, boost your team by playing the young guys. And if you win four or five more games because your young guys are actually winning it for you, is that really a bad thing, right? Yeah, that's true. If there is like some discernible way to improve the young guys. But yeah, other than Zadina, it's not like he's had much to work with in terms of young guys either. And like Dylan Larkin is a dominant five on five player at very least. And like Mantha progressed well to the point you got a first round pick and a great player back for him. Like, it's not all bad. Yeah, I mean, like the prospects he has on the roster, they have on the roster right now as I'm looking. Zadina, um, Philip Ronick, who's 23. But like, I guess that would be under his tenure. Gustav Lindstrom is 22. Um, Michael Rasmussen is 22. Uh, and that is it. So, yeah, and even like a Rasmussen was like a no upside pick at the time. So, I doubt if there's anything Blashville could have done. Literally, it was a meme pick when they did it. Like, yeah, it was a Frederick Gautier, but higher style of pick. 
Yeah, and you know maybe the argument is he's not playing someone like Joseph Valeno enough, um, or at all. Yeah, um, but yeah, like I, there's clearly something there because like all the fans really seem to hate this guy, and I don't think fans of rebuilding teams tend to usually hate the coach that much because they understand they're supposed to be bad. Exactly. So um, yeah, I, I don't know. I was a little surprised to see him extended after people pointed it out, but I didn't think it was like. Like I, when when people said like when the, when the news got announced it, it was like they just hired Mike Babcock again or something like that. But I was like I, I don't think it's that surprising. Like the team is they're like planning on being bad for at least two more years. You would assume, right? Like this year they have three seconds, two thirds, two fourths, two fifths, two firsts. Next year they have three fourths and two seconds, and they'll probably get a couple more picks as the year goes on next year. Like I would assume the if you're going after even like the Ottawa model, it's okay. Yeah, we like. Iserman got here last year, year one of a teardown. This is year two. You probably have another year where you're selling all the veterans off and trying to get a high pick. And then in three years from now, or even maybe two seasons from now, you're at least looking to see some growth from like the Lucas Raymond's this year's top pick, probably more deciders of the world. And that's where you start building yourself back up. Yeah, that would make sense for like the logical timeline. But the other thing is, I don't know, like the distribution of coach contract. Uh, values or how much money Steve Eisenman's allowed to spend. But like Glashill made 800 grand in that last contract. And that seems really cheap to me for a coach. So that could also be part of it. Like, look, you go to ownership and you tell them we're planning to be bad during a pandemic might. It's not crazy to think that they wouldn't want you to be just going all out on a coach. So yeah, I think that could be utility too. That's a pretty good point because it's like, they haven't sold tickets in a year and a half and they were so garbage even before the pandemic that it's not like they were selling many tickets then either. Right. Like if you looked at the, any Detroit game, the, the arena home game, anyways, the arena was just empty for like, cause they've been, they've been horrible for like four years. Like they've been actively one of the war bottom four teams in the league over the past four or five years. And like, obviously uh, last year, just kind of like, put the icing on the cake with how bad they were, you know, like they, they were thankful. It was um, a short, the lockout shortened season, but it's one of those things where I, I definitely could understand that where it's like, maybe he's making 1.2 mil or whatever, instead of going out and spending like Rob Brindamore just make, got a $3 million contract extension with the Canes last week, I believe. And like, that is probably cheap for what, in my opinion, what Rob Brindamore seems to bring to that team. Like, his result. I mean, granted, it's a very, very talented Canes team, but I think he's a big part, a uh, part of that as well, too, right? So, yeah, and it's one of those things where if you have a good coach, which everyone in the world, like the hockey men, the reporters, the stats guys, people who vote on awards, like everyone's super high on Brindamore. So if you do have a good coach, it's like huge edge to pay him because it's not against the salary cap. So, like that is kind of the perfect guy to sign to a big deal because it doesn't count against the cap and yet he can add wins to your roster. Exactly. It's like, it's one of those things where it's like, it almost doesn't matter what he makes because it's not like it's same with like the Mike Babcock thing. They paid him what? Seven million a year, six million a year, highest paid coach ever. Um, but because, you know, he got wins for them when it started and then when it stopped, they cut him at no cost other than just paying him, which the team could very much afford. Right. So. Yeah. Theoretical um, question. Yeah. So you're replacement level, like, and you're replacing him with like a Nazem Kadri, like a great second line center. You think that would help your team more or less than going from like a Blash Hill to Rod Brindamore? 
a replacement level center as a two C, did you say? Yeah, like say you're or just wherever he was, you're replacing a replacement level like forward with like a strong two C as opposed to a replacement level coach like Blashell to like a strong coach like Brendan Moore. I think it might depend where he is because if you have absolutely no talent, that's where your replacement level is up in the top of the lineup. It would theoretically provide more value where if you're adding Nazem Kadri to the fourth line of, I don't know, like there's no team that actually has three better centermen. I don't think the Nazem Kadri, but like if, they, if that's the idea, right? Where you're so deep down the middle yeah. already and you add Nazem Kadri on the fourth line, it's like, well, it's not like you're, you're not complaining about that by any means, but at what point do you get to some diminishing returns where it's like, oh yeah, the upgrade from the, I don't, what do you call Blash Hill? I would say it's so hard to judge because his team's been so shit, but like, let's say bottom seven coach to a top seven like coach, 25th. right? Yeah. yeah. 25th five or whatever. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think it depends on the roster. I think you can make an argument either way. I like, I would lean towards player value just because there's so many, but it depends if you're on that one edge, because you know, there, there is a handful of coaches, I think in the league where, you know, like, um, uh, Trotz is obviously one of them. I, I would throw Quenville in there personally still as well, where it's like, there's an obvious difference where they get a ton more out of their players than any other coach would. So if you're making, if you're into that, um, stratosphere, then I think the coach definitely is the way you lean, but it, it just kind of depends if you put Brindamore there. And I, I think that's almost personal opinion at this point. Yeah, that's hundred percent fair. I tend to lean towards the player more just because like we can pretty easily say, you know, Nazem Cotter's worth X amount of wins over three seasons, plus or minus this. It's a lot more difficult with the coach, but like it'd be an interesting thing to learn one day. Cause I wonder if that's like a, a pretty big inefficiency. Yeah. And the other thing too, is like, you can, it's probably harder to find a Nazem Kadri than it is the 15th best NHL coach in the league. You know, like we, we talk so often about how coaching is so, it's not like the exact same, obviously it's a hard thing to do, but there's five really, really good ones that really help your team. Five that, you know, maybe you can argue kind of help the team five that are like very not good. Don't help your team. And then a bunch of guys just kind of in that middle group, right? Where it's like, they do some good, they do some bad fans kind of like them kind of don't after two or three years, they run their course. I feel like there's so many of those guys in the middle group. It's probably easier to grab one of those so that your downfall from Blash Hill to Brindamore or whatever you want to call it is lesser where it's like, you can't just go out and acquire a Nazem Kadri for nothing. Right? Like. Yeah. Like Bruce Boudreau is has been unemployed for a year and Gerard I don't know, too. yeah like I don't know either of those guys personally if they're trying to work or not but like let's assume they are players as good at hockey as they are at coaching don't sit at home for a full year yeah or even and Bruce, close to it. Bruce Boudreau is like past, go ahead sorry they don't make it past like five o'clock on July 1st Literally, like the, half the time they don't even make it to July 1st because someone's trading for their, like, right, trading for their rights to go sign them. Yeah, yeah, like but, they're just not making it to market. Yeah, Bruce Goudreau, I'm pretty sure this year, was, like, actively pleading, saying he would coach the, he would be the assistant coach of the Maple Leafs, if I remember correctly, but. Yeah, um, he did I, enough I, stuff where he was quoted as being like, oh, yeah, I would love to coach in Toronto that I assumed he was very much looking for a job. Yeah, I, I think he's probably picking and choosing where he gets his actual job for the next one, but I would assume he'll be back in the head coaching game sooner rather than later. But um, 
Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. Again, like if you're looking at Blash Hill's record, it is gross. Um, took over in 2015-16 with the Red Wings. They had a 567 winning percentage, made, made it to the playoffs, lost in round one, I believe in five games to Tampa. 16-17, out of the playoffs, going 33-36. and 36. I don't like how it just lists lot wins and losses like that, but OT, whatever. 2017-18, um, 30-39. and 2018, 19, 32 and 40, 2019, 20, 17 and 49 for a 2.75 winning percentage. Um, and then this year they went 19 and 27 in 56 games. Um, again, like ugly, ugly, ugly coaching record, but I, like his teams were kind of garbage as well, right? Like the three years before he was in the NHL, he won a championship with Grand Rapids, uh, Grand Rapids Griffins in the AHL, lost in round two with that team and then lost in round three as well. So it's not like he's never won anything. He has coaching experience and, and successful, but nothing at the NHL level. Yeah. And it's, it sucks. He's got to be like one of the worst records of all time, to be honest, because he's just been there throughout the worst part of this Red Wings team. For people with like 200 plus, 300 plus games coach, absolutely. Because I think the worst winning percentage is Peter Horacek, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that would make sense. Because there's going to be like a reverse survivorship bias where the best coaches only coach like 82 games or the worst only coach like 82 games at most. And that'll get fired. Very few are allowed to just sit around on miserable teams like Jeff Blasio. Yeah, absolutely. And it didn't help that like for the first two years of his coaching or whatever, they didn't accept that they were miserable and they were just naturally were. And then now they're heading into the, uh, the rebuild. Right. So yeah. Um, now I'm trying to see if I can reverse it. Oh yes, I can, but there's a bunch of really, so there's a bunch of guys who had never won a game, but it's because they only coached like sit, like they took over at the very end of a year. I'm trying to figure out what the worst one is for, um, Anyone with like a hundred plus games played Lou Anganati has a two fifty winning percentage in 112 games coached George Kingston in 164 has a 192 with a team back in 1991, 92. It must've been, it doesn't list the team here. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch with like, 200 or 180, 279. Here's the earliest 312 winning percentage. Um, I haven't, these are a lot of like 1970 teams as well, where it's like, yeah, does it even, less- yeah, geez, that's pretty funny though. Uh, Rick Bonus actually is a 360 winning percentage or points percentage, I should say, in 556 games. He must have just coached some rat teams before. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Although I thought he was a, I don't know. Okay, we'll, we'll stop this. But yeah, that's a, his record isn't great. So I definitely can see why some people were surprised. Um, let's move on. Uh, do you want to go into the playoff stuff or do you want to stay out of playoff stuff right now? Uh, we can go into the playoff stuff if you want. All right, let's hop into the playoffs. Um, we'll go with what's already happened. This is, uh, I've got to watch just about every game. I think I've missed parts of the Vegas game and I missed the third period of the Colorado game because Colorado's dominating and I went to sleep when I saw it was 2-1 a minute into the third. Um, this has been the best start in the playoffs I can remember maybe ever. Like every single game has been close and entertaining. There has not been like one blowout yet. Yeah, it's been like peak hockey. It's been actually worth watching basically through and through. And Literally. like the most unwatchable game 
involves the New York Islanders because of course it does, but like there's still stuff to grasp onto there. Yeah, even then, like I, I think, like, like I, I've had I, I've watched both the Islanders Pens games. I think it's been you know it hasn't been like as thrilling as some of the other ones, but uh, it's been just so much fun. And I, I think part of it maybe too is just getting to see fans back in the building and just going nuts. Like we'll get in the Tampa, Florida series, but that definitely does not look as cool without 12,000 Florida fans just screaming at the top of their lungs. Right. And I, I think that's been a massive part of things as well. Yeah. It's um, it was one of the funny things I saw this brought up on a podcast where they were like, I think an underrated part about not having fans in the buildings is like how much of sports being enjoyable is just the atmosphere and nothing. The atmosphere is absolutely never better than the playoffs. Absolutely. I fully, fully believe that. Like it's like the, the, the thing I'm so sad about and, you know, we're getting to Montreal, I guess in a little, but um, you know, the, the Canadian division still not going to have, could you imagine if game whatever on a Saturday night is in either in Toronto or at the bell center and that place is it's Toronto, Montreal in a playoff series. And that's got 22,000 people st- stuffed into it or whatever. Like that place would absolutely just be going ballistic. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, weird tangent. I had a dream last night that the Leafs, were just absolutely routing the Habs in game one and the building was packed and everybody was just going nuts. And I woke up like physically excited only to be like, fuck, they're still, uh, they don't even play till tomorrow. And that's just not going to like the building rocking just isn't going to happen. Yeah. Like the series will still be great, but yeah, it just, it's definitely got a different feel. And even just like, like I think Pittsburgh had, I want to say it was like 6,000 fans or something for their first game and like, or their second game maybe. And like, that was less obviously, but it was still noticeable to just like hear the fans. It was, it was a really nice change. Um, scary nonetheless, because I, you, you know, that not everyone's double vaccinated, but you know, part of me is like, well, I'm just going to try not to think about it and just enjoy it because it's happening regardless. Right. Yeah, exactly. This it's like the, the, that cost has been sunk. So you might as well enjoy it. Yeah. Um, Let's get into the series, I guess. Uh, we'll start with the ones that have only played one game so far. Game two is going tonight for both the ones that we're talking about. Colorado, St. Louis. Um, St. Louis right now is having some COVID issues. Uh, Perron got pulled right before game one. Um, and now they have like five or six guys that they have claimed, I guess, they tested positive. But they think that it's a um, a false positive, basically. So we'll see where that goes. Um, game one, <laughs> I saw the funniest tweet in a reply to um, – uh, what Elliot Freeman saying that uh, they might well like they because they made a statement basically and they were like well we'll see where this one goes uh, they're hoping to get it by this afternoon I think something out and um, this guy replies he goes the NHL knows we can beat the quote unquote favorite to win the cup so they take away our leading score dot 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 first reply is just there's no conspiracy against your team calm the hell down and then I just <laughs> laughed so hard at that whole interaction as if the St. Louis Blues who literally stumbled in the playoffs made it by default because the bottom four teams in the division were that freaking horrible there's a conspiracy going around to, to kick them out of the playoffs that's for sure and if there's a conspiracy against one team and the NHL hates one team, I'm sure it's the team with the most li- unlikely Stanley Cup win of the past like 10 years where they came back from dead last. They're the team yeah. who the NHL is conspiring against, I'm sure. Yeah, they're like, screw those guys. Just absolutely hate them. Like, 
I, I don't know. That's fandom for you, right? But uh, yeah, the actual game itself. And then someone said, did you watch game one? The NHL doesn't need to do anything to conspire <laughs> against you. And that's the most accurate thing I've seen because um, Colorado dominated. Like the shots, I believe, were 50. I think they took 50. The five on five shots for were 43 to 17 in favor of the Colorado Avalanche. Um, just pure domination uh, from one way to the other. Bennington held his own for a little while and then tried to fight Grubauer at the end of the game. I think Bennington might be one of the most easiest unlikable players in the league right now in terms of he's not a dickhead like Tom Wilson, where he's actively trying to hurt people. He's just a dickhead because he seems like an asshole, but he like, he doesn't do anything that it's like, you're definitely an asshole. He just kind of looks like it. Yeah. Like Tom, Tom Wilson is like outwardly a villain. Uh, Bennington's just kind of like a little turd. Yes, that's a good way to put it. A little turd is, is kind of the, yeah, that, that that's very fair. Um, I could have said it better myself. Um, I, I don't have much more to say on this series, to be honest. Like we already, we analyzed it last week, even before we knew it was these two teams playing, but you know, you said it like this Avs team is one of the best teams we've seen in a very long time. Uh, they have, I believe the best chance to win the cup in 10 years that Dom's model has been doing it. Um, so like, that's just that I think it was 38% or something insane like that. Like that speaks to how good this team is. And we saw it game one. Exactly. It's one of the ones where they absolutely decimated them in terms of like outplaying them, even though the score wasn't absurd. And it's just like the abs did this all season. The blues kind of sucked all season. It looks like one game in this series is what we thought it was. The avalanche are just way better. Yep, absolutely. Um, let's go to another one that's only played one game, Carolina Nashville. Uh, this, they play game two again tonight. Uh, again, mostly what we expected. I, I thought Nashville looked a little better um, than I was expecting, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, Carolina shot them 26 to 17 at five on five, Corsi four, uh, 45 to 35 for shot attempts. Um, Carolina was clearly the better team, but again, it's one of those things where you get a couple bounces. If you're Nashville, if you play that kind of game, Soros makes us one more save you're right in it. And, you know, I don't think it's, it's definitely not a team that Carolina can can take for granted because if they do that, they will get bitten. But if Carolina plays like they did the other night, I, it should be a five or six game series. I would believe. Yeah, exactly. Just like the abs to a lesser degree, which is exactly what we expected uh, for the series. Carolina is who they thought we we thought they were, and so is Nashville. Yep, and there's nothing really wrong with that. Uh, keep going. Let's go Pittsburgh, New York, I guess. I'm just going pretty much in order, of course, four percentage on natural stat trick. But uh, let's go Pittsburgh, New York. Again, uh, you, you, we touched on earlier. Um, I, I thought this has been pretty exciting, to be honest, for New York hockey. Um, the Islanders are always going to have a little something, but um, you know, there's been some hatred. There's been a lot of chance. Like there has been a lot of chances and even just like game one, I don't know how much of you got, you got to watch, but um, oh, I missed game one and saw game two, which has probably tainted my opinion of the series. Yeah. We say game one was really fun on, on Sunday. It was a lot of fun. And you know, so it was back and forth. Islanders go up three, two right away. You kind of go, okay, this is game over. Like the Islanders are going to play their shutdown hockey. Nothing's getting through literally the, as soon as the puck drops, Kasperi Kapanen gets it, wires a bullet that, you know, I th- thought Sorokin maybe should have had, but it was, it was a nice shot anyways. And suddenly the game's tied and the buildings goes going nuts again. Uh, Islanders win game one in overtime. Penn's win game two. They just held on to it. Like the Islanders looked like they were going to force overtime in that one as well. But um, yeah, I, I, so far I thought it's been a pretty good series. One, one after two is exactly kind of what I, we both kind of expected. And to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if it was two, two heading back to Pittsburgh for game five. Once uh, the next couple of games are played here. 
yeah, that would be probably the most likely outcome. Uh, the Islanders, I still like my Pens pick in the series, but like the Islanders are not going to be an easy out, even though they're a less talented team. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing we should Mal- mention is Malkin has not played yet in the series. We thought he might be good. We thought he would be good to go, but uh, he's not. Dumoulin missed game one and was back in for game two, which is a huge addition. So um, I'll be really curious to see how this team goes. Kyle Palmieri got two goals in game one, and that's a huge out, but they need him to be like what they thought he was. They thought he was when they acquired him because, you know, he had a rough debut with the team, but if he can kind of replace that Anders Lee mold, that team at least looks uh, more dangerous. That's for sure. Yeah, that would definitely help because the Islanders aren't exactly going to go blow your doors off and somebody does have to score when you're playing the Penguins. Yeah. I will say this Pittsburgh team is wild to me. You watch them for two periods in the game and it's like, how is this even going to be a series? Like first period on in last night, game two there, Pittsburgh just ran rough shot over the Islanders, like just like just dominating them. And then you kind of flip back. And like, I was watching multiple, I was watching Tampa, Florida at the same time and flip back and suddenly shots were like 20 to six in favor of the Penguins at one point, And then they just fall asleep for 10 minutes. And suddenly the shots are like 25, 20 in favor of the, the Penguins as well. It's like, Oh my God, like, we're, like how do you play so dominant for 40 minutes and then just get absolutely dominated for 20 like that? And, you know, like I, I, and I guess that's kind of the NHL, you know, two good teams going at it, but you think it would just be kind of close the whole time, not just, huge massive swings one way or the other but that's one thing I've really noticed with this Penguins team is they look like two different teams during the course of the game yeah I don't know if this is uh just because they're the two teams I pay attention to most but the Penguins definitely seem very prone to do the leaf thing where they just fall asleep and like four mistakes absolutely freaking kill them even though they have like a good 40 minute thing they just seem to absolutely blow it sometimes yeah, I, I think the so like it kind of seems like that way. Um, you know, again, I didn't watch the Penguins as much this year, but that's definitely a, a Leafs narrative for sure. And um, yeah, I, I think the other thing for the Saints series is what Tristan Jari of the Pens going to get. He was bad in Game One, and I thought he made a couple of real big stops in Game Two last night, though. So um, you know, getting good Tristan Jari is going to be important for this team because you know uh i i think that both the islanders goaltenders have been pretty good varlamov led in a softy last night but he made a couple huge stops to make up for it and yeah sorokin looked really good in game one as well so um they're gonna need jari to be at least average probably slightly above that if they want to you know stay on par with this series yeah because you know the aisles are getting good goaltending so you can't afford to suck yeah, exactly. Um, on to the next one, Boston, Washington. This has been a real fun one. This has just been a blood bloodbath as well at times. Um, it's been exciting. It's been physical back and forth. Uh, I thought Boston has probably deserved both games, to be honest. But, you know, they, they, they're another team where it's like – and, I mean, the statistics don't really suggest – like it's been 54% Corsi 4 and uh, um, 64% expected goals for Boston. So it's not like they've been absolutely dominating, but I thought they've outplayed them enough. Um, Rask, people are mad at Rask. I don't really know why. Like the Boston, I think they're really prone to um, not falling asleep for certain amount of times, but the classic one really big mistake, if that makes sense. Like it'll be a huge forecheck for three minutes. They'll have really good looks and then it'll just be one stupid pinch. You'll learn, lean to a two on one back the other way. And if there's one team you don't want that to happen against, it's the Washington Capitals because they just have a ton of shooting talent to make you pay for that. Yeah, they're just so much more likely to score on the, those shots than the average team that they're a tough team to give it up against. But now that it looks like the Bruins have a second line, like they're terrifying, even though the series is 1-1. 
Yeah, absolutely. Taylor Hall's humming again. Like that, his goal in uh, game two was, or he, I, yeah, he, I think he's, yeah, he scored, brought it in, started the rush, you know, brought the puck in, got all into the net, and then found the rebound by himself on the net. Just an absolute thing of beauty. And, um, you know, one pet peeve of mine, I hate that they keep calling it the perfection line um, for the top line there. I get that's kind of what their nickname is. Hate hearing announcers use names like that perfection line every time they come out uh, over the boards. Um, has no impact on the game. I just don't like listening to it, but um, I'm trying to think the other thing. Yeah. Now. So the interesting thing now too, Chase is that Boston's going home. How do you line match if you're Boston here? I would throw the perfect at Obi. I would just say we're going ahead. Like let's fucking go. I have the best line in the league. You don't let's, let's do it. Yeah. That's I, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. Uh, I think, um, you know, Kuznetsov hasn't even been playing um, like this series. They I think he was a healthy scratching game too, if I read that right. Like, I think he was available and they just said, you're not playing, which is a little wild, but uh, hey, whatever. Um, but yeah, I think I would try and just neutralize their best line and then just let your depth, say the depth's got to take over here and hope that even just like with the best line in the league, they will win that at five on five and then you can just win four lines deep, but. Yeah, because Washington's mostly a one-line team. I would put most of my energy – like, you want a line match Ovi. But, like, after that, you're kind of just comfortable with your depth saying, we're pretty sure we're going to win this top matchup and our depth's better, and we don't really care whether it's two playing three or three playing two kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that'll be an interesting one to keep an eye on. Uh, Vegas, Minnesota. This has probably been the one I've watched the least, to be honest. Uh it's been a good series. Like the, the, the one nothing game is hard to make a entertaining game, but the game one where it was one nothing in overtime was actually a, a pretty fun one to watch. Uh, Talbot absolutely stood on his head. Flurry made a bunch of big saves. Uh, you know, so it's not, it's not very often you get a low scoring game like that. That's really fun, but that's what this one was. And game two, I only watched the first last night and then fell asleep. But um, you know, from what it sounds like Vegas just, you know, kind of took control of the game, which we kind of expected they would here and there. But uh, this one wouldn't surprise me if it goes seven games at all. Yeah, early on, and it's it's only 1-1, but it looks like I didn't quite give the Wild enough credit. This one looks like it'll be closer than I expected. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, I, I think I had Vegas sweeping, to be honest. But I, I, what I didn't like, the, the um, geez, sorry. Minnesota's really played Vegas tough this year. And, you know, um, there, I think that if it was roles revert, like I think Colorado would have an easier time with Minnesota than Vegas is going to have. Um, and you know, part of that's just cause I, you know, they're maybe a better team, but just in general, the way their styles match up too. And you know, this defense core for the Minnesota wild, we tell it's really good and it can help stifle some, stifle some of the, the Vegas offense. And and they're also playing without Max Pacioretty, which is a pretty big loss as well. Right. Yeah, that doesn't help. And I think that the head-to-head matchups is like mostly stupid and just like overrating six games of data for the sake of doing it. But like maybe there's something there because there's no evidence that like Minnesota could obviously win this series. It's hockey. Anything can happen. But like all the numbers at five on five are basically break even. If not, you could argue have slightly favored the the wild in terms of five on five XG score adjusted. So like, there's no reason that should really be the case. So maybe it is just something that they match up particularly well against these guys. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like sometimes that happens and it's not like, 
the Wild aren't a bad team or anything like that. But um, yeah, well, we'll see. Um, I'm excited to keep watching it. Like this is one where it's like, I, it's good hockey. I just, for whatever reason, I'm not like pumped to watch it. And maybe that's just because it's at the end of the night, usually after I've watched like two or three games of hockey already and uh, worked a day and, you know, you're just exhausted at 10, but um, yeah, I don't know. Um, and saving the best series for last. Uh, this has just been like doing cocaine and sitting down for three hours, to be honest. Like this has been just something last night's game. Wasn't quite as good as game one, but game one is one of the, one of the best hockey games I think you could show. If you're trying to get someone hooked on hockey, sh- sitting them down and showing them that game probably would have been the best thing you could do because it had a little bit of everything. Tampa, Florida? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's been the best seat. Like, this has been the NHL's marquee series, which I didn't really see coming. Like, I knew there was some bad blood. A lot of people talked about it. People closer to the situation did. I kind of thought. Yeah, it's still the Florida Panthers, but wow, was I wrong? Yeah, it's been like it's and even just like, like I, I fully admit that I didn't watch too many Florida Panther games this year. I barely know anyone in their bottom six, other than like Nolachari, and even him is just because I, I know him from Boston. But like, like you just look at their bottom six, and it's just a bunch of like gritty, physical guys who can kind of play as well, but like. You know, they're, they're not like awesome or anything like that, but you just have a whole mix of guys who've just been trying. Their whole goal is to go and piss off uh, the the lightning as, as much as they can, basically. And um, to an extent, it's worked. You know, like it's been back and forth. Um, Sam Bennett, there was obviously a couple dirty hits. Sam Bennett got suspended one game in game one. I thought that was very fair. Like that was a that was a brutal hit. That was just a, a, a disgusting play. Like the, there's no place for that in hockey. He took like, seven strides and nailed a guy straight in the numbers. Um, I thought McDonough probably should have been suspended for hit as well. There was a knee on knee that didn't get called or punished at all. Um, so, you know, obviously there's been some, some stuff that you don't really love to watch, but uh, it's been, you know, there, there's just also been another, a lot of other stuff where it's like good, clean contact, you know, two teams clearly just cannot stand each other, you know, throwing their body around and there's been a lot of skill on display too. You know, we, we've seen Huberto point Kucherov Stamkos. They've taken over games as well. Um, you know, it's just been a, a lot of fun to watch really. Yeah. It's been a great series and it's, it's really too bad for Florida. Like they're down two nothing to at worst, like the third best team in the league or fourth best team in the league, I guess. Like I, I have a feeling this, series might be over sooner rather than later and it's going to be too bad because they've deserved a way better fate they've played really well all season and they've even played the tampa bay lightning really well but sometimes you just get a shitty matchup in the first round yeah they deserve to split in, in those two games i think they should be going one one but um i'm just hoping now it goes six or seven that they can force it that i hope it's not over in four or five um you know i, I think they, they should be able to i think if they can steal one in tampa they'll be able to win game five at home and then, you know, maybe it ends at six. That's what I'm going to predict now. But, um, like, it's just been a lot of fun, right? Like, it's it's honestly just been great to watch. And, like, I even – it was so good that, like, even my coworker sent me an email when I was got in on Monday, and they're like, did you watch that Florida game last night? Like, that was awesome. I was like, absolutely. Like, it was – and, you know, they're not massive hockey fans or anything. Like, they, but they sat down and watched. It was like, that was entertaining. It was like, yeah, that, that's great hockey. Yeah, I don't know when I got Twitter sometime in high school, like grade 10. So I don't know what that is, like six years ago. That was by far the most I've ever seen Twitter talk about the Florida Panthers in an hour. Yeah, other than the um, – yeah, no, just in general, to be honest. I was going to say maybe the only time I've seen it more was when um, 
Who's their, their GM that had the thank God I'm back quote? Oh, was that Talon? Yeah, 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 Talon. Um, yeah, when he said thank God I'm back, that one got a lot of play as well. But no, this was just like everyone was focused on this game and it helped that it was like the marquee 7 p.m. matchup. Oh, it was all that was on. All eyes were on it and it did not disappoint. And, you know, game two, it was a good game last night. I thought there was... It, it took forever. I think it almost took like three and a half hours because every whistle was just a bunch of hugging and, you know, like there'd be a punch thrown yep. and then like five guys would just hug each other and then they would take forever to sort it out. Um, I don't really care to watch that in game three, but you know, I we'll, we'll see if the, the tempers keep flying here or not. This series has played like 30 minutes less at five on five than the Penn series. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all. It feels like it's all just like, yeah, four on four, five on four. Like it's just been there's been so many penalty minutes, like just in general. Yeah. Um yeah, seriously wild. But yeah, to the thing of everybody talking, the other one was when they left their coach at the airport or whatever. But with <laughs> this series, it's even like people who like football and stuff are like, Oh wow, this Lightning Panthers game was freaking awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was just like people like enjoying hockey and being like, yo, you guys have to tune into this game because like this has been like just a joy to watch or whatever, right? It's not like dumping on a team or anything like that. It's like, this is like, come watch this good hockey. This is what you should be wanting to see. Yeah, like, you know, the game's nuts when Americans I follow for NFL analytics are tweeting like, oh my God, this game. Yeah, it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, we can debate the merits of fighting. I don't like, and again, I don't think we need fight. There was, in game one, I don't, there was no one who dropped the gloves, I don't think. Um, But like, we saw a bunch of physicality and physicality is good for the game when it's clean. Obviously there was a couple dirty hits in there, but you know, and there were but like, you just, you know, how many tweets did you see on Twitter where it's like, man, hockey's sick. I got to watch more of this. Like I saw a couple people. I saw like Nick Marks is a huge streamer. He tweeted that out. Um, you know, there, I saw two or three other people. I was like, it just got retweeted where it was like, man, this is awesome. And it's just like, yeah, like that's the kind of stuff that you should be promoting to get eyes on your game where it's like, good skilled and obviously intense hockey like and it's it's great to see you know people actually enjoying it and it's not just two teams punching each other at every chance they get because it's not like there was a line brawl or anything yes there was a ton of scrums and stuff but that's a lot different than just 10 people arbitrarily just lining up to drop the gloves or whatever for no reason at all yeah exactly like this just been like peak hockey like it's just perfect yeah, and like the whole playoffs been like that, and uh, the the Canadian division starts tonight. No Ealers or Dubois for the Jets. That's a tough blow, man. I did the series preview for last word on hockey on this. Uh, you can check that out if you want. Shameless plug, but um, ah, man, I don't see a way that Winnipeg, other than Hellebuck either posting a nine sixty or Smith posting an eight ninety, I don't see a way where Winnipeg wins this series. I, I just, especially that was with Ehlers and Dubois in with them out for any length of time. I don't know, man. I, I think this is going to be a quick one. Yeah. Something we didn't touch on enough. I don't think when we did the playoff series was how little faith I still have in Mike Smith, even though he was good this year, but like, Edmonton should just run them over with no Ehlers and no Dubois. So, it, like, there might be such a differential here that that barely even matters. Yeah, I, I think I think that's uh, – yeah, that's kind of where I'm at, I think, too. Like, it's just – and even, like, I don't think – if Mike Smith is that bad, I, 
I want to have faith that they're not going to keep him in the whole series, right? Like if he absolutely stinks for two games, I think Koskinen comes in. And if he just gives you nine, 15 goaltending, this team is probably going to be good enough to beat them again, like for two or three games or whatever you need. Yeah. A hundred percent. Cause like short and Hellebuck, like I don't even think Hellebuck being Hellebuck will be good enough now that we know Dubois and Ehlers are out. Like I think he's got to be better than he is on average in this series, which is absolutely like he, he is going to have to, he's going to basically have to have the same percentage that uh, um, Columbus goalies had against Toronto last year in the, in the bubble there. Like where it was like, I think Miss yep. Lurkins had like a nine forty coming out of the series. And then it bumped up to a nine forty five after that four overtime Tampa game or whatever. But like that, I think that is legitimately might be the performance Hellebuck needs to have. Yeah, a hundred percent. Because this, like, the team is so bad at five on five and is playing without two of its best five on five players. It could get so ugly so quickly. Yeah, like they were just saying a lot. Like I really, I think I've done more thinking about this. If I'm floor, or sorry, if I'm floor, if I'm Winnipeg, I think they should try and line match. And I mean, they can't even do this because they're not at home, right? But like for two first two games, but I think they should try and line match that third line against McDavid. Um, I didn't quite realize how bad Wheeler versus McDavid was this year. And some of it can be, you know, variants or whatever, but Wheeler and McDavid played 62 minutes at five on five against each other. McDavid and the Oilers outscored them 11 to one while those two players were on the ice. Um, Yeah. A 9% goals for percentage is definitely going to be like some PDO, but like McDavid's maybe the best offensive player we have ever seen and Wheeler is one of the worst defensive players of the past, like 15 years, these past couple seasons. So that kind of outcome isn't super shocking. Yeah. And it's like, even if it adjusts, that's fine. But you know where the expected numbers were, it was 28% expected goals and like 35% Corsi for what for like Blake Wheeler. So it's like, even if it does regress, it's to the point where it's like, they're getting outscored seven to three instead of 11 to one or whatever. Right. Like it's not going to be good if you try and line match. So that line. So I really think you got to throw your third line, which had, um, you know, better defensive results against them at least. And just hope that that can kind of contain him because like, man, I, I really even and even just like the more I look into like if Josh Morrissey plays 20 minutes against Connor McDavid, I that'll just be McDavid is going to feast, dude, like just feast. Oh, 100 percent. Well, we were all like waxing poetically about how McDavid just had the best season of the past 10 years. I think he was like third or maybe second in adjusted points like of all time, like era adjusted points per game. That means when Blake Wheeler was on the ice, he made him look better than he otherwise did. Yeah. Like that's insane. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was just like he must have literally just looked like a god out there when it was him versus Wheeler. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'm really curious to see how play watch, you know, I'm gonna try and get this published tonight, but watch, you know, this doesn't publish until Thursday and we're looking back, which is like a six-nothing Emin or Winnipeg win where Blake Wheeler had a hat trick or something stupid like that. But uh just the more I look at it, I have very little confidence in the Jets. Um, but you know, hey, you, we, we've seen it in the playoffs a couple of times where um that when when a team has no pressure, that's when they're at their best and um so we'll see where it goes, right? But you, you can't count any team out. But um, if I had to, if I had to bet all things even, you know, I'd be putting a lot of money on it on Edmonton here, just in terms of straight out win. Yeah, the I would be. You'd have to give me some pretty nuts odds to be betting on the Jets right now. 
Yep, totally agree. Um, other Canadian series, you know, that's starting tomorrow. Habs Leafs, oh, man, the Habs are making some interesting lineup decisions here too. Romanov, Kogniemi, and uh, Caulfield will all be sitting, not in the lineup, all sitting. Um, this is pretty insane to me. I'm not going to lie. I don't think they're as good as maybe some other people think. I think Romanov, you know, we had Berkshire on the podcast. He thought Romanov is, you know, like a solid stay at home guy. Not like not massive upside, but like he's still probably a number four, maybe a number five, but like that's better than at least two of the guys they're dressing in this lineup this year. Like, um, and you know, Joel Edmondson's been good this year. So like, I, I get the whole thing of like, he's not coming out, but also at the same time, just like Joel Edmondson could be Joel Edmondson at any given moment again, but like Ben Sherrod has been actively bad this year. And John Merrill has been horrible with the, with the Canadians as well. So I don't really see why either of those guys should be playing ahead of uh, Romanov on the blue line. Yeah, I have no clue why you'd do that. And even though, like, Romanov's just uh, this nice stay-at-home defenseman, say he's a four, that can usually be used as, like, a shot at his upside in the future. But, like, right now you don't care about his upside. You care about stopping the Toronto Maple Leafs electric offense, and Romanov gives you a good chance to do that. Or better than your other guys, at least. Yeah, obviously not like Alexander Romanov's going to shut down Austin Matthews, but like he's better than some of your other options. And that should be your primary concern right now. Yeah. And, you know, and same kind of idea, I think up front where, um, you know, our Cogniami really hasn't been that good. I don't have as much of an issue with scratching him. Do I think he's probably better than Jake Evans? Yeah, probably. But they seem to want Jake Evans playing that quote unquote fourth line role. Um, They they don't really trust Cogniami to do that, which, Again, I, I don't know, like, sure, whatever. Like, I don't think, to me, the name kind of popped out for some people. That one wasn't as well. But to be honest, like, Courtney, I mean, has good defensive results this year. I wouldn't, like, him being a fourth-line role wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. To me, like, he clearly just didn't have the season they wanted him to have, um, and that's fine. But the, the fact that Cole, I get Cole Caulfield is not controlled play when he's on the ice, but the dude had four goals in seven games or whatever it was. And this is a team that literally for the life of them cannot score. If like, like if they depend on it, they cannot score. And you have one of the few guys you've seen since Max Patch already that can put the puck in the net. And you're like, no, we don't actually need him against a high goal scoring team. What? Bench, benching Caulfield is insane because like, the median outcome in this series is you lose and you lose pretty bad. Therefore, you need to be actively risk-seeking because you need certain things to go really, really well to win this series. And one of the easiest ways to do that is, is like he might be their most talented shooter already, is your most talented shooter pops off. Like you need to be risk-seeking to beat a team that's way better than you are, and they're taking the complete opposite approach. Yeah. And like the thing is like the people, so it's like, they're so defensively minded in this lineup right now. Like Paul Byron's in Paul Byron was horrible offensively this year. Good defensive results. Lekkanen exact same thing. So you can tell they're going Jake Evans, Arteri, Lekkanen, Paul Byron, their goal on the fourth line is just nothing happens. You do not let that Spezza line score on you. Just go out there and play defense for when you go out. But then up on the third line, you have Corey Perry, who, again, was actively not very good this year. He had slightly above average defensive results and very below average offensive results. And it's like, that would be fine if he's on your fourth line, but you already have your fourth line doing that exact same thing. And then to, and then it's like you have Joel Amir, uh, Joel, Jesus, sorry, 
Joel Armia in the lineup as well, which again, like I don't take too much of an issue with, but because his offense is plus an impact, but his defense is negative, but it's like Joel Armia we've seen does not score at a absorbent rate. You know, like if it's between Armia and Caulfield, you put Caulfield in there because on your second line, he might have a chance to score two or three or four goals during a seven game series where Again, no offense to Joel Armia, but like it's just less likely that he is going to do that. Yeah, and like I don't know exactly where they were using him, but let's say your second power play unit's sucking. Like that's Cole Caulfield's music. Well, you just they're, don't have that option if he's not dressed. No, yeah, their first power play unit sucks. Like this is oh, going to yeah, be one yeah, of the worst. Montreal sucks. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be one of the worst power plays uh, series we've ever seen. They may as well just play it all five on five because Toronto's is not good either. Like Toronto's is, uh, uh, it, it is pretty ugly too. Yeah, it's it's really petered off down the stretch. In terms of scoring, anyways, I don't know if they're still. They might still be producing at like an okay rate, but I know they was like they it's went like. Oh, sorry. It's Pardon, XG sorry? is still. Yeah. It's okay. XG is still pretty good, but it the actual scoring has completely shriveled up. Yeah, like they went like seven for fifty-five or something like that down the stretch. It was uh, it was ugly to watch, but yeah, like they're they're eighth in Corsi four per sixty on the power play uh, this year, and they're third in expected goals per sixty. So you know, I you, you want to say that like at some point it's going to bounce back, right? They have so much talent that it looks like it's been okay, but like. At what point do you say it doesn't bounce back? Because it's been 40 games of it not bouncing back after 15 or so of just one of the hottest power plays we've ever seen. So it'll be interesting to watch that. But yeah, like Montreal's power play is actively just like, like actively bad. I'm pretty sure. Like even just from um, a, a chance standpoint, they're 29th in expected goals for per 60. They, they generate five goals for per 60 on the power play. Five expected, anyways. And then um, on. Uh, for, you know, Corsi 4 per 60, they're 30th. So they're about a 30th ranked power play or 29th, wherever you want to put them. Um, and they go, no, we don't We don't need that guy, actually. We don't need a, a shooter on our power play, actually. We'll just give the puck to our defensemen and let them blast point shots all night. Uh, that seems like a, a good way to go. Still. Yeah, and there's something to, like, the spacing, too. Like, who has a shot you're scared of on the Montreal Canadiens? Like, oh, whoever has the best shot relative to league average like you're not scared of a defenseman shooting on the power play that's such yeah, a low I mean, percentage shot that he, he's way better at it. it's not scary yeah you're scared of like no one wants to block Weber's shot but except for the goalie who can do that pretty easily compared to you know a sniper on the wing or whatever right like and it's like like obviously I shouldn't say no one's scared of Shea Weber's shot it's just if you give Shea Weber an open look at a goaltender the goaltender's going to stop that nine times out of 90 you know 9.5 times out of 10, right? If he's just sitting there teeing off from the blue line with no screen in front. If you give Cole Caulfield a shot, even an open look at a goalie, he's probably scoring on it nine times out of 10, eight and a half, th- or like the goalie, sorry, he's not scoring on it. The goalie's stopping at nine times out of 10 or eight and a half times. Like, it's just like you get an extra goal added for every like nine or 10 shots that are taken or whatever. And it doesn't seem like a lot, but that goes a long way. Yeah, exactly. And then maybe that opens up some space for the rest of the guys because you finally have someone who shot you actually have to respect on like the current iteration of their power play. Absolutely. So um, let's let's touch on Jim Benning, I guess. um, Go ahead, sorry. I am pumped they're going this way. Like the Leafs were roughly as good defensively as they were this year. And the fact that they're trying to out-defense a team with way more skill than they are and that's roughly as good as defense – as good at defense at them makes me so happy. 
Yeah, and like it's just like, oh man, like and did you see like the videos of Carey Price in practice? They the reporters were like, oh, I haven't seen Carey Price this dialed in in practice in years. Like, you know, it's a good practice when they're cheering that they score on Carey Price, <laughs> and then and then like he he let in a goal which was just like like just literally a shot below him and he snaps his stick in frustration. It's like, Oh, this is just, yeah. I was like, this is a mess. But I made a joke. So like, and we were laughing at this yesterday, but in our one group chat, I had put in that, you know, uh, it was Dom's model, I think has him at 75% chance for the Leafs to win. Right. And um, he was saying that uh, I think it's about 15% over the past, in the past 10 years, there's been about 20 series that have, uh, had a 75% chance or more. There's only been 15% of them that actually had the upset. But uh, what he put in the 75, and two of them were the Montreal Canadiens, funny enough. They upset um, Pittsburgh, I want to say, one year, and what the Washington year where they in the, they got halacked. Um, those were the two upsets. And so I put that into the gr- our group chat that we had, and I said, Habs and Habs sweep incoming. And then I see their roster that they're icing with no Romanov, no Caulfield, no uh, Kotkaniemi, and I go, just kidding. <laughs> like ne- never mind. I, I take that back because I, like and it's, they'll probably make it. I hope they make an adjustment. Like let's say the Leafs just dominate them. It's four nothing after you know game one, and it's like four nothing, four one, whatever. That Habs are just never in it. I can see them making a switch, but it's just it's one of those things where like if that happens, it's just going to be like I told you so. Why would you not make that switch to start with, right? Yeah, a hundred percent, and like it's clearly being set up as the the nuclear option. So when they leave Toronto down to nothing, Ducharme can be like, oh, look at what I'm cooking up. And now they have a completely different lineup. It's like, well, why the fuck didn't you just ice your 12 best players to begin with? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, do you want to talk about Jim Benning real quick? Yeah, might as well. That's All right. We got a couple minutes here. Um, there was, uh, <laughs> did you see the Mr. Booth stuff that went around yesterday? Oh, that was hilarious. I the saw. Full, yeah. So he, if anyone missed out on Twitter, um, Mr. Booth, uh, classic Canucks troll. He, he changed his account to look like uh, the owner of the Canucks, Aquilini. And I forget his first name, but um, and he, he made this like official statement, looked official and everything. And it got so many people to bite on it. Like to the point where I'm pretty sure Pierre Maguire was dissecting it on Canucks radio for like a full minute because of the report that they saw, because they thought it was real when they glanced over it. And like, I saw it retweet on my timeline four different times of people like dunking on it. There was so much text. I was too lazy to read it. So I didn't get gotcha just because I was simply too lazy to read it. Not because I noticed anything wrong with the account. I was just like, whatever. I'm sure I'll hear about this. If like, it was super serious. And then I realized it was a troll. I was like, that is the funniest thing in the world. But um, there were reports yesterday from not a troll account that uh, Benning's, you know, job might be that he might've like Aquilini might've been uh, unimpressed with, you know, Benning and the job he's done that his job might be in danger. Um, he came out today and said, no, it, or Friedman confirmed last night. Sorry that uh, no, no, it is not in danger. He is staying around for the off season. Um, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't even know what to say because it's just clearly the wrong move. Like how much time do you give a guy? And, you know, we, we've argued, or, you know, I've argued, sorry, with people about Mark Bergevin and, you know, we've talked about how good of a job has Mark Bergevin done, but like, at least with Mark Bergevin, he's made the playoffs a couple of times. Like, like uh, Benning, 
tried making the playoffs for three years, sucked so much at the at it that they actively had the worst record in the league over three years while they were trying, got a bunch of top picks for that, hit on a couple top guys for sure. Like, you know, Hughes was uh, Hughes was a consensus pick at the time because he fell, but you still got to pick him. Same with Pedersen. And then did nothing with it. Just signed a bunch of more bad contracts to the point where it's like, they're kind of in cap hell to the point where like, I don't know what they're going to do this year. Yeah, I have no idea. I love Jim Benning because some people seem to defend him. It's like they went to the second round once and like, that's cool. Well, like if you literally just tally up wins and losses, it's so clearly that he's bad. You don't have to look at their courts before. You don't have to look at their RAPM expected goal differential. He's just consistently iced a team that has lost more games than it's won in spite of spending a ton of money on it. Yeah. And like, like that's it. The, and like the biggest defense of him was, well, well the team, he got left to t- a team in shambles. It's like the team he got left with went to the Stanley cup finals and a conference finals in like back-to-back years or like a president's trophy the year after or whatever. Like it's like, and it's like, yeah, I get by the end of that run, they were kind of like spending to keep it in, but it's like, he still had a fine team. And even if he thought he didn't have a fine team, the, the, the answer to that is to rebuild. He didn't try to do that. He went to go and sign Louis Erickson and, you know, like just names like that all the time where it's like, no, we're going to try and keep this window open. And of course it backfired because the, the players he signed were bad and expensive, you know? Yeah. And even if they were good, he didn't understand that the rest of his roster wasn't good enough where a Jay Beagle doesn't even matter. Even if he's like twice as good as a, nor- a normal projection would expect. Yeah, and it's just like it's one of those things where it's like, to me, you can't like almost like with Blatt, not you don't get a pass, but like especially as a GM, if if you come out and say no, we are gonna suck for, like there will be pain, quote unquote, right? Like if you come out and say we are gonna be bad for two or three years, and it is clear that you are rebuilding, I'm not gonna look at your record for those two or three years, or even like, I mean, I'll look at what you did, but like if you sign a bad contract for three years. And you know you're going to be bad for those three years. It's like okay, yeah, maybe there's better use of that space, but at the same time, it kind of is what it is. You know what I mean? Like now that bad contract's off your books, and you have younger guys, better guys replacing it. But it's like if you just actively go and sign guys that want to be good and say every year, and you can tell every year they wanted to be good, and you fall flat on your face, well, you don't deserve to be defended for that in any way. And then you know, when you double down on it, when you finally get a good core, and you double down on that same stupid stuff with you know. Tyler Myers and, and, and shit like that, where it's like, what, like, what are you doing? I, I just, I don't get it. Yeah. Like he, he just fundamentally cannot assess his own team. No. And or like, players at all, well, which is just, weird because there's a big thing is scouting. And I get that like projections are not the same as who's good right now, but like you'd think if you're actually this magical scout, you'd be able to identify which NHL players don't suck. Yeah, and, well, and but like, and the thing about the scouting too is like, even that I don't think he gets enough flack for because, you know, like that, that's the kind of like same arguments made with Pierre Dorian. Pierre Dorian's a good scout, can't evaluate NHL talent to save the dude's life. He is the worst at it. But you know what? Pierre Dorian has multiple picks where you can see outside of the first round they got a gem like Drake Batherson, fourth round pick, Alex Formanton, second round pick, Mark Stone, sixth round pick, even Eric Carlson, lower than expected, right? There's yep. like, like how many guys from outside the first round are making impacts on this Canucks team or even like have the chance to make an impact. Like it just, it feels like there's like, like Niels Hoglander Hoglander. was a good pick. I like that one. Second round 40th overall. 
other than that, like there's just not many guys that are homegrown. And even like, again, like even as much as you get credit for a Pedersen, if we're going to give them Pedersen and Hughes credit and that, that's fine. Like I'm okay giving them that credit. You've drafted an Olu Levy as well, who like like imagine like that Olu Levy draft was stacked, right? Like that was the the Kachuk and William Nylander draft, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe not William Nylander. Yep. Oh, not William Nylander. It was the Kachuk draft, I think, though. Yes, it was the the Matthews draft. So it would have been Matthews. Oh, now we got to pull this up. 2069 challenge, but like there was just the, the point is there was a bunch of guys left on the board that uh, they probably could have had that would have been much better than only Levy and they didn't take it. And like, there's a couple names like that where it's just like, if we're going to give him credit, he's got to take the flack on the other end. Uh, yeah. So when you Levy, then Matthew Kachuk, Clayton Keller, Alex Nylander, Mikhail Sergachev right after. So the, the four picks right after three of them are very, very obviously better players than him. And one is arguably better, but marginally, not really. Right. Like it's, they're both kind of equally bad if we're being honest. Um, but yeah, like, the... like oh, sorry, I don't know. Like, I was just, that's the biggest thing where it's like, if there was tangible proof that he is like really, really good at drafting, you know, players that like are exciting coming up young. And it's not just because you were horrible. And, and that's the exact same argument that I should, I apply to Ottawa where, you know, to me, you don't get, you don't get any credit for drafting Tim Stutzla. Um, you get enough credit for drafting Brady Kachuk because obviously people were pissed, but again, like Brady Kachuk, when, you know, when you use a rational head and look back at it, Brady Kachuk was a consensus top eight overall pick. So the most you reached for him was four picks, which again, people were mad at the time. I was pissed at the time, but like you get credit, but you can't get that much credit because it is still a top five pick. You were expected to hit top five, top 10 picks. If you can't do jack all after that, you don't get credit in my opinion, or you shouldn't like be deemed this just like godly drafter because you can throw a dart at a board of just consensus rankings in the top 10 and hit probably 50% of the time, right? Like it's just, that's how the NHL works or like they're going to get the chance. So I, I don't know. It's just, it's insane to me how he is still sticking around. And I feel like the tides are turning now, but even just like heading into the year, how many people just like really defended every move that this dude made. Yeah, it's and it's been great to watch as a non-Canucks fan, but I can't believe they're still having him back, especially if they're disappointed in him. Yeah, exactly. Like I, this has got to be there. He's probably on on a tightrope this year, right? Which like, I don't know. To me, it's like if if it's playoffs or bust, and the GM's getting fired, I feel like you should just be firing your GM this summer already. Um, yeah, if but, you're that like out of love with the guy, just move on. Like when it's the playoffs or bust, it's basically like you're for a reason to fire him, right? Just fire him then. He's clearly not the guy you see in the long term. Then just get rid of him. Break up now instead of later. You'll both be better off for it. Yeah, exactly. Because like, like, it doesn't mean you have to bring in a guy who's going to start a three-year rebuild again. You can bring in a guy who's like, I want to make playoffs this year, but that guy is going to know he's got three or four years of job security and isn't going to mortgage the future for right now where it's like, there's no reason for Jim Benning to do anything this offseason, but just absolutely sell the farm. So his team is good in this upcoming year. How he does that, I don't really know. But like he could trade away draft picks and all this stuff because all he should care about right now is saving his job. It might not be his problem because if it backfires, it's not going to be his problem in three years when this stuff really comes to hurt them, right? Yeah, it creates such an aggressive moral hazard when like it's super obvious that the GM needs to make the playoffs or else. Because 
then obviously he has every incentive to do everything that the team should be looking to avoid. And I don't make, I don't understand why teams would ever put themselves in that scenario. Like just fire him or say he's your guy for a while. Yeah. But Pick one. You know, yeah. And we, we see it all the time too, right? Like it's not a, a Canucks only thing. We see this in, in all sports really like um, trying to think who was it? There was a football team. I want to say this past year that like, either did or didn't fire their GM because they won it. Like it was like, basically if they weren't going to be like eight and eight or whatever, their GM was getting fired, but they made, they went nine and seven snuck in. Like I, I can't remember exactly what team, but there was like one team where it was like literally a game or two decided the, the GM's fate. It's like, okay, well, like if that's where you were at, at the time, you should probably just fire him regardless. Right. Like. Yeah. If it's going to come down to a fumble or in the NHL, if it's going to come down to how a goalie plays on like a six game stretch or whatever. Yeah, and it's the same thing with just like, like let's say it's playoffs or bust. If they miss the playoffs by a singular point next year, yep. do you still fire him? If he makes the playoffs by a singular point, is that now something? Is that magic line the line that you have the cutoff on? And you're like, no, this is good because again, if that one point is the difference, it uh, just seems absolutely arbitrary and wild to me. Yeah, it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. Um, that's all we got. There's been another long episode. We've been going longer lately. I, I've been liking it. I, I don't know about you, but um, yeah, it was a pretty busy week. I think we'll we'll stay busy as as the playoffs go on here. Lots to talk about. I've been trying to watch as much as I can. But uh, you can find my work at lastwordonhockey.com. I had the Jets preview out. I'll be covering that series. So I'll have a, a recap or an analysis piece after Game Three and a recap whenever the series ends. Um, I also am going to try and get some other writing out uh, and then at milehighhockey.com as well. I've been doing some, some Avs stuff. Uh, you know, I'm going to try and get a couple analysis pieces out over the playoffs here. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at NHL sends and stuff. Chase on Twitter at CMHockey66. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll talk to you all next week.